Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everybody. So great to see so many faces out there. Um, so great to see so many young, young people out there. So I just, I love seeing you kids hanging out with your moms and your dads and with your friends. And so thanks for just jumping in. I, I know for some of you, families who have kids that are younger, younger, you're not used to being in here all the time. You're getting more used to it, those of you who've been here. But you guys are doing a fantastic job. And I just want to say, keep it up, keep it up. Um, and engage in the Word of God. And if you have questions, I love questions afterwards. So please feel free to reach out. Um, we are going to continue our study this morning from Psalm chapter 126 in the, Psalm, in the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Pastor Bill did a fantastic job last week unpacking part of Psalm 125 and the idea of trust there. And really, trust is a theme that kind of goes over all of these different psalms. This idea of, of growing in, in, um, in knowing who God is, knowing what God will do, and going to Him with everything we have in our lives. This is this idea of journeying and pilgrimage and walking with God. And, and in fact, walking with God is, is such a great description of our Christian life. And in walks take all shapes and forms. If you've ever been hiking, sometimes you, you hit a hill that gets really, really tough, and then you get to the apex of the hill, and you have this beautiful vista. Sometimes you get to the top of the hill, like if you're in the Appalachian Trail, sometimes you get a vista. Sometimes you get to the top of this hill, top of this mountain, and all you see are trees. And that is so frustrating as a hiker. You're like, I just want to see something besides trees in front of me. But, but this idea of walking with God is an idea of journeying and, and day by day experiencing what it means to know and trust and follow the Lord. And before we jump into our passage for today, I want to read for you uh, a, a couple verses from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy in, in chapter uh, 10 says this, and, and this is God's words to his people Israel. In chapter 10, verse 12, it says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking? by walking, by journeying, by going forth in all of his ways to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own good. And I love this verse. I love Deuteronomy. One of the things that reminds me of that, that God calls us into a certain way of living when we journey with him. He, he, he doesn't say, all right, follow me and now do whatever you want. He says, follow me, walk with me, journey with me, and be obedient to my word. And it's in this obedience that, that we fear the Lord our God. Notice it says, fear the Lord your God. How do we fear God? How do we revere God? By walking in all his ways to love and to worship him, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. And so this walking out of his teaching is, is a central command to the scriptures. Um, first John says it in a similar way, but yet a little different, and I'll, I'll give this to you, and we'll jump into our passage from the Psalms this morning. 1 John chapter, chapter 2 says it this way in verses 5 and 6. 
He says, this is how we are sure, uh, sorry, verse five, but whoever, no, verse three, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him by keeping his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And so our lives as disciples, all the courses of, of things that our lives take, um, our, our lives are to walk as he walked, to learn from Jesus what it means to follow him with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. And that is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for me this morning as we begin. Psalm 126, we are going to jump into. And um, this idea of walking will kind of underscore a lot of what we say today. But when I came to Psalm 126 last week, I'll, I'll admit Psalm 126 was a little bit of a struggle, trying to figure out where everything was going and what it meant. And as I dug into it more, it helped me understand it a little bit better. And I, and I hope to share a little bit of that learning with you this morning. And so let's read um, Psalm 126 together. Uh, you can remain seated right now. You've stood for a little while. Uh, just recognize and hear that this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us, and we were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed. He will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Let's pray again together. Our Father and our King, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us what it means to, to follow you this day. God, bring... Um, bring both the text to life, and God, show us how it applies to our own lives as followers of you. God, if there are people joining us, whether online or, or in person, who are still figuring out who you are and what it means to follow you, God, bring a great knowledge of the truth to them, that they might hear the word of God, they might respond in faith, they might respond to the gracious initiative of you sending your son, and they might walk in a life that is filled with the joy of the Spirit that marks the life of someone who has trusted in you. We bless you, God, and we thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, verse 1 is where we will begin. It's a good place to begin. And verses 1 and 4 provide a key to understanding what he's talking about here. Uh, he says in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Okay, so as I was studying, I went, what does it mean to restore? And what on earth is a fortune? Like, is a fortune like a fortune cookie? Is it like they, they found some gold or something and they brought it back to the temple? Like, what on earth are we talking about here? Your text might say captive. That, that's another way that you could translate fortune here. Um, both of these words, in, in my text, the word restored and fortune come from the same Hebrew word. And that word, because you love your Hebrew words, I hope, is shuv. Can you say shuv? Shuv. Okay, shuv. S-H-U-V is how you could spell it in English. And it's an important word in Hebrew. It's a word that means to turn, to return. It means to restore. And there's one more meaning, where are my notes? Um, to turn, to turn, to restore, and to repent, okay? It's this idea of, of you're walking one way like you're walking this way, and then you turn and you go this way, 
All right, sometimes it's used in the scripture and it has to do with like direction and, and walking. But a lot of times in the scripture, it's used metaphorically. It's used to, to refer to turning away from God. In other words, going your own path. It's also used to uh, describe what it means to turn and go towards God, meaning you have left that which you were pursuing and you've said, I'm coming back to God. And so you get this kind of range of um, definition here of return, repent, um, turn, and restore. Now, not only do people turn, God turns. Uh, this word is used with reference to God, as God is the subject. And when, when it is used that way, it's used in the manner that God receives or God restores to himself the person who has turned to him. So it's this picture of, like, like if, you, if you're a parent and your kid has done something wrong and they come back to you and they say, Dad, Mom, I have done something wrong. They've turned to you and, and, and sought repentance. And you have the choice. You could say, I don't want to even hear it, and you turn away from them, or you turn to them and you say, I forgive you. When it's used with God as the subject in here, it's often used to describe how God receives the person who is repentant before him. The, the person who has turned from their evil or their wicked or their selfish or their prideful ways and they've wanted to go and they've said, God, I have screwed up. Will you forgive me? And God turns to them and he receives them. That's, that's kind of the idea behind this word. It's this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, this word is also used within contexts that suggest that Israel will return to the land of Israel. And, and there's a couple of different reasons for this. We won't go into all of them, but the big one I want to, to, to tell you about is that when Israel returns to the land, the, the, the land was supposed to be a place where God would bless his people, Israel. And so when they are sent out of the land in the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles and captivities, that, that, that's a measure of um, judgment. It's a measure of discipline that God does to help awaken their senses to how far they are from him. Um, and so that's the idea of the word to restore or to turn, the first one. Now, now the word fortune, again, comes from the same root. It's slightly different, but it, but it can mean fortune. It can mean captive. And one of the reasons, or one of the clues to help us know what on earth is the psalmist talking about, is when he's talking about captives, you know, he, he could be using it in a spiritual sense, someone who's being held captive by bondage or by slavery or something like that. Um, but, but I think, and, and many scholars think that this has a, um, this being Psalm 126, has overtones of the Babylonian exile. You know, in verse one, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And so there's some sort of restoration of captives from outside of the land to back into the land. But in verse 4, we have this prayer. We have restore our fortunes, Lord. So, so one describes something that has happened, and the other, verse 4, describes or, or is like a, an imperative plea or prayer to God of God, bring back those who are captive. So this idea of restoring, returning, repenting, those who are far from you is a huge 
a huge important point to understand what the psalmist is doing. Now remember, they're ascending, they, they, they would say the psalm as they're ascending the, the steps to the temple. And so, and so even as they're saying this, you know, you can think of the time around Jesus or just before Jesus or after Jesus, they're ascending this, the, the steps of this temple during one of the pilgrim feasts and they're saying, God, restore the people who are not here. It's almost like they've gathered for a family reunion with all of their tribesmen, you know, all, all the people from all the 12 tribes are supposed to be there, but not all of them are there. And they're looking around saying, God, restore the people who are not here. Restore the people who are far off, both in a spatial sense, but also in a spiritual sense. Um, God's people found themselves in exile in Babylon, in Assyria, and, and um, they, they found themselves there for a specific reason. To, to look at that, I want to go back to Deuteronomy, but chapter 30 this time. Uh, if you would just hold your place in Psalm 126 and turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. Um, in Deuteronomy 30, we find this passage that talks about the returning to the Lord. Now, now what you need to know is uh, just two chapters before, we have the people hearing the covenant of God, and they're being warned. God is a good God. He, he warns his people, like, if you're going to do this, here's what I'm going to do. And if you're going to do this, here's what I'm going to do. And in chapter 28, there's 14 verses that talk about, if you follow me, if you, if you walk after me, if you your values are lived out in the way I've called you to, Israel. Here's how I'm going to bless you. And Bill picked up on this last week. Uh, he, he said there's just a few verses that talk about blessing. There's 14 to be exact in chapter 28. But then when it talks about curses for disobedience, which, which happen because people don't follow God, and um, that picks up in 15, and it goes all the way to verse 68. In other words, there's a whole lot of verses that talk about curses for disobedience and just a few verses that talk about here are the responses or here's what God's going to do to bless you. Now, that's not because God's blessings are, are insufficient. It's that God desperately loves his people and he pursues them and he wants to bring them back to himself. He wants them to know how far they are from him. And he does that through discipline. Uh, the scripture says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And that is how he works with Israel. Deuteronomy 30, though, says this. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses I've set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return, there's that idea of the word return, to the Lord your God, and you obey him, that idea of walking in obedience with all your heart and all your soul by doing everything I'm giving you today, then he will restore your fortunes. So the idea of restoring fortunes in Psalm 126 is tied to this idea of when God's people turn from the way in which they have been walking away from God and they turn to God, God sees that and he restores them to himself. He, he, he returns or he restores their fortunes. Verse 3 continues, it says, He has compassion on you, and he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He says, even if your exiles are at the ends of the earth, he will gather you, and he will bring you back there, or he will bring you back from there. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and to multiply you more than he did your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart, with all your soul so that you will live. 
The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. And then you will again obey him and follow all his commandments I am giving you today. Verse 9, the Lord your God will make you prosper abundantly in all the work of your hands with children, the offspring of your livestock, and all your land's produce. Indeed, the Lord will again delight in your prosperity as he has delighted in that of your forefathers. When you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in the book of this law and return to him with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, the idea of walking with God is hearing his word and obeying it. And in the process of uh, of, of doing that, God's people are to find blessing. Now, this is written specifically to the nation of Israel, and there are specific blessings like bringing them back from outer lands back into the land. And, and it's interesting because even since the time of the Babylonian exile, not all Jewish people have been gathered back into the land. Only a fraction of the people who came back from that exile came back into the land. Um, and, and there's prophetically a time in which God will restore all of his people, the, the, the tribes of, of Israel, to himself in the land. But this idea is consistent. When we follow God and when we hear God and when we walk with God and we obey God, we receive blessing. And one of the things that we have to be careful of when we talk about blessing, sometimes we think blessing is, oh, I'm going to get everything I need. Oh, I, I'm going to just have, you know, the biggest house, the best car, the, the, the family that does not go through any struggle or anything like that. Blessing, blessing according to God comes in all shapes and sizes. In fact, good is defined by God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The idea of blessing, he, he goes on with some more, but the idea of blessing is that God meets you. God meets me right where we are, and he gives us everything that is sufficient for our lives today. The greatest blessing, put it in a different way, the greatest blessing we can experience as followers of Jesus is walking with God and learning what it means to trust him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And so Deuteronomy 30, God is returning the captives because they have, um, or he's promising to return the captives. And, and he returns them, uh, well, they got away, or they were sent away. God sent them away because they were unfaithful to him. And, and as they turn to him, God brings them back into the land. And there's a couple other things going on there. But, but this, this is a time in which Israel comes to their senses, Deuteronomy says. They, they recognize that they have been unfaithful to God, and they say, God, we turn back to you. God, restore us again. God, return us again. Um, the idea, Bill picked up on this last week. When, when it talks about Zion, and verse 1 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion refers to a spiritual backdrop of the people. It's, it's not just a, a political place. It's not a physical place, although it is. It, it's, it's talking about the people's heart. God cares about where the heart of his people are. And even in Deuteronomy 30, he says, I will restore the fortunes back to the land. And so that's the idea of verse 1, and it's picked up again in verse 4 of Psalm 126. Uh, go back to Psalm 126 really quickly. Um, it says in, in verse 1, we were like those who dream. In other words, they come back to the land and they're like, is this real? Like, could God really have brought us back to the place 
where we were intended to dwell. He goes, this, we were like those who were in a dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter at that, po- at that point then, and, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. So the response of God's people to being returned to the land is one of joy. They recognized they didn't do it themselves. They, they recognized that there was nothing in and of themselves that said, oh, hey, you know, we, we could just go back and we could just set up our own camp again. No, they, they recognized that God has done great things. Their, their song here is that the Lord has done things that we can't even begin to imagine. In fact, we were like in a dream and they're filled with joy and they declare this among the nations. They declare this among the nations. And then verse four comes to this point of prayer. And, and this is the way I look at it, is, is he's coming to this, and, and he said, God, thank you so much for restoring us, but he recognizes that there are people who are not there. And he says, God, restore our fortunes. God, restore those who are still far off in their own captivity. God, bring them back to this land. Bring them back to this land. And he uses this image like water courses in the Negev. The word water courses here can mean deep valleys or stream beds. Now, water is incredibly significant in the biblical context, especially when you see a word like Negev, because Negev is a place that's incredibly dry. There's not a ton of water there. There's only certain seasons where the rain comes, and and the ground is so rocky and sandy, and it's not a place, scholars say, and and I've walked there, and it's dry. It's dry as can be, uh, especially during seasons of, of drought not during the rainy season, but, but it's, it's, it's dry and what little rain it receives, it evaporates rather quickly or it becomes surface water. And so for this reason, you find um, God's people tend to shepherd down in the Negev. They don't tend to grow a bunch of crops. There's other places in Israel that grow crops more effectively than the Negev, and that's because of water. But they can graze sheep because it grows little tufts of grass that are sufficient to sustain as the shepherd takes them place by place by place by place. And so the, the prayer here is, God, bring back our captives. God, return our, our, our fortunes like water courses in the Negev. And so it's this image of, wait, there's water in in the midst of dry. In these dry places, you have what are called wadis or gullies, and it's low places because this place isn't flat. It's not just com- com- completely flat. You, you have ravines and all this kind of stuff. And so when the rain comes, rain always goes to the lowest point. And so the rain comes and it all goes down into these gullies. Pretty soon, um, since it hasn't absorbed into the ground that much, you have these what are called wadi washouts. I, I, I heard a scholar who, who studied much in Israel uh, share a story this week about um, Bedouin people. Bedouin people are, are n- tribal uh, nomads, and, and they would, they, they have such a, an understanding of how the desert works and, and what goes on that, that they would sit around a, a, um, a, a fire. All of a sudden, the Bedouin start getting up and p- packing up their stuff, collapsing their tent, putting it, putting it all together, and then leaving. 
And 45 minutes to an hour later, the reason they left is because they, they sensed through the ground or through knowing just their surroundings really well that there was water coming. Because when water comes, when a wadi comes and it begins to flow with power, you're not going to stop it. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a photo several years ago of a wadi washout in Israel. And it, and it, um, it made uh, a, a caterpillar truck or one, one of those big uh, land mover type things. It was stuck in the mud because all of a sudden it was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Water comes through and it just becomes a quagmire. Um, and so the, the prayer here is God restore our fortunes like water courses in the Negev. In other words, God wash it, just bring it with its fullness, with its power. Restore your people back to the land. Verse 5 says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. And, and we have this, um, this idea of sowing seed. Remember, this is an agricultural community. They, they knew what it was like to plant gardens. They knew what it was like to shepherd flocks. And, and he, he talks about sowing seed. And or sowing tears, but this idea of sowing is sowing is an act of trust. It's an act of trust. Every time a farmer places a seed in the ground, they are praying and trusting that something is going to come from this that they're going to be able to use. You know, you, you put that zucchini seed in the ground you go, and you go, Lord, bring a zucchini plant by which I can get way more zucchini than I might ever want, or a cucumber, or something like that. And, and, and this is a people, if they're not using the seed to grind and to eat, like wheat, like corn, like barley, like wheat and barley are kind of the two major um, grain crops in Israel. If they don't use it to eat, to feed their family, they're putting it in the ground to sow. So every time you place a seed in there, that's a bit of food that is not going to your family. It's an act of trust, saying, all right, God, we're going to trust you for crops this year. God, we're going to trust you to bring rain at the right time. And this image of those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy it is an act of trust. When we follow God's word, when, when we live out of the text, a lot of times it doesn't make sense in our culture. It doesn't make sense to the people around us. But as we do that, as we sow seeds of goodness and gentleness and humility and kindness and patience and love, as, as, we, as we make these deposits in, in a land that is not always very suitable to them, we're trusting that God will use them in a way that will bring glory to his name and in a way that, that will bring a harvest unlike we could bring ourselves. It's like this in sharing the good news of Jesus. You might be sharing the gospel with someone for the first, second, fifth, 20th, 50th time maybe, maybe more. Maybe they've been affected by other people too. You're sowing these seeds of here's what God has done for you. Here's what God wants to do in you. Here's what God wants from you. And you're trusting because you and I, we can't bring people to salvation. All we can do is speak and live the word of God accurately and faithfully. God has to bring the harvest. That's, that, that's in God's timing, and we trust God as we, as we faithfully live out of his word that his word will not return void, and it's this act of trust. Farmers can only sow and tend. They cannot make anything grow. I mean, how many of you have had that garden where, like, the peppers didn't work for the entire year? You're like, they look so good, but nothing grew. I don't know what to do. You know, there's certain things you can do. You can tend. You can water, but we can't produce growth in and of ourselves. It's something God has to bring. 
My grandma and grandpa, um, Cobb, on the Cobb side, were fantastic gardeners. They, 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 were, they had grown up in an agricultural community, and they had like an acre garden. It was huge. Uh, it was awful to weed. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to do that all that much. Um, but my grandma and grandpa had a sign in their garden, and it was this. He who tills a garden works hand in hand with God. And, and uh, he who tills a garden works hand in hand with God. And, and it's this idea of we, we work with God, we journey with God, we, we, we seek to know God day by day. Because gardening, th there's never time off. There's always something that, that you can be doing, even if it is waiting. Even if it is waiting upon what God wants to do. The psalmist is praying for the restoration of his people. And while, the sower, uh, while they sow good deeds in the word of God, only God can bring this growth. And the result of a harvest is joy. There's shouts of joy. Um, and, and this idea of shouts of joy has parallels in the prophets. If you want to go look later, you can look at Isaiah 35. You can go look at Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 31. And you can find uh, a lot of similar language that's going on here that the prophets pick up. Um, the, the, the one that comes to most mind is, Therefore the redeemed of, of the Lord shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. As God's people come back into Zion, the, the, the response is joy. And, and it's, it's a joy because they've returned to God, and God has restored them to live through them. And, and, and God, God makes restoration possible through his son. As I was studying Isaiah this week, one, one scholar says, God does not want to place any barriers in the way of people coming to him, which is why he sends Jesus. He sends Jesus because the barrier for us is sin. You know, the scripture says all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. Each one of us has missed the mark, and without God's redemptive initiative in our life, where would we be? And so God flattens those barriers, and he says, come to me, trust me through my son, and there you will find life. There you will find restoration in him. Through trusting the Messiah Jesus, our yoke becomes easy and our burden becomes light. He gives us teaching and how to live, and he empowers us to live for his honor and for his glory. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, you don't need to turn there. In Matthew chapter 11, it says this though. You, you, you know this. You know this passage. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son desires to reveal him. And he says this in 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. There's only one place we go, to Jesus, for rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. Walk this out with me. Let me be your teacher. Take up my yoke. Lay down your own way that you think you should do it, and instead pick up the yoke of Jesus. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and there you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was reading a devotional yesterday and I loved what the writer said about this verse. He says this, um, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, we all say, that is a hard saying, even though he went on to say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Why? Because we have never really taken it on consistently. It is tough to bend your neck in the early stages, to bow your will in submission to him. It is challenging to get up every morning, to put on the yoke, to go out into the field and to start plowing. But, and this is important, you pass from difficulty to joy when you learn to live in it. In other words, when we hear the word of God, when God wants to teach us something, oftentimes our immediate response is, but God, I don't want to do that. The way we find rest for our souls is to say, God, I receive your teaching. God, help me to live it out faithfully for your glory. And the response is walking daily with our Savior. Um, A couple of comments as we close. Psalm 126 has an eschatological tone to it. You know, it looks forward to the day when God returns all of his people from back to Zion. All, all, all of the tribes, they come back, and, and we look forward to that when God does that at the end of the age. Um, but what I want to talk about in terms of application for today is, where are you in relationship to God? What, what, what is your Babylon? What, what's your captivity? In what ways have you and I wandered from God today? Think about that for a moment. In what ways have you and I wandered from God today? Our captivity might be uh, in workaholism. Our captivity might be in fear or in anxiety. Our, our, our captivity might be locked into our own thing, what we want to do, when we want to do it. Our captivity might be material possession. Our captivity might be looking really good on the outside while inwardly we are just caving in. What's your Babylon? Where are you in a sense of captivity? Where is there a portion in your life that you say, God, I can't trust you. I can't pick up your yoke here because I'm just holding on to what I think I need right now. To walk with the Lord is to say, God, here is everything I have. I place it down. I pick up your yoke again today. I live out of your teaching by the work of your spirit. How might God want to return you to himself today? Where are you walking in this way when God is over there? I love it, though. When we turn, God restores God renews. You know the story. It's the story of the prodigal son, better labeled the story of the merciful father. Uh, It's a story of of a son who comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want your inheritance. In other words, he he means, Dad, I want you dead because I don't get your inheritance until you die. And uh, I, I want it now. So he comes to his father and his father graciously, mercifully says, all right, son, here's, here's half of what I own. Here you go. Uh, here's your portion of the inheritance. The, the son goes off to squander and squander and to live the way he wants to live, to, to, to live after his own pleasures and after his own desires. Money runs out, uh, friends run out, and he finds himself in the lowest of the lowest of the lowest places. He's feeding, this is, this is a Jewish kid in the story, he's feeding pigs, which are unclean, saying, even these pigs have more food than I do. He finds himself in the lowest of lowest of lowest situations, and he says, even my father's servants are treated better than, than I am right here. 
The son recognizes that he has sinned against his father. He returns to his father, and as, and as he's coming, his father sees him way off, and the father goes running to meet him. Uh, a father at this time would not go running to meet his son. It's an act of lowering himself. It's an act of saying, I accept you. You don't have to do anything in order to meet this. It's a way of saying, um, despite what you've done, I bring you back. That's not how a father, generally speaking, in this time would have acted. They would have required the son come and do certain things and then maybe be made right, maybe. The son comes and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And by saying that, he's saying, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. The son thinks, if, if only he might restore me as a servant, as a slave, it would be better than what I've been. And what the father does is this, is he restores him to being a son. He, he takes him, who was way in his own Babylon, way in captivity of his own seeking, and the father says, here's my robe, here's my ring. Come, let us rejoice, because the son that was lost has now been found. Now, that's not the whole story. There's, there's a whole thing with the brother, but, but that's a picture of how God is with us. When we turn, when we return to God, God is there ready and able to restore. And the same is true for those in our lives who are far from God. Who in your life is in a sense of Babylon, in a sense of captivity? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a next door neighbor or someone you've met through work or someone you've met through sports. Who in your life is walking in a whole different direction from God? The prayer that the psalmist prays, God, restore our fortunes, is, a, is in part a prayer of God, bring those people who are far from you back into a knowledge of your truth or into a knowledge of the truth for the very first time. Bring them to yourself that they might dwell within the land in the spiritual sense here, dwell within the, the blessing of what it means to follow you and what it means to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. So just for a moment, where are you? Where's your Babylon? And who in your life is in a Babylon of their own? Friends, this week, may a prayer for our lives be, God, restore our fortunes. Re restore those who are far off. And as God does that, as we trust him with that work, as we faithfully live out of God's teaching, may God receive all the glory because the Lord has done great things. And may we rejoice because another person who was once lost is now found. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, God, we, we find ourselves so many times in areas of our own doing, places that are far from you. And God, this morning, perhaps, perhaps there's one or more than one of us here who says, God, we, we turn to you. God, God, we repent of the ways in which we have followed our own selfish ends. And God, your word says that when we turn to you, you meet us and you restore us. You restore us. God, we're back in relationship with you. First John says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, as, as you do that, we are restored with you in relationship. And so God, we thank you. We thank you for the joy of walking with you today.
And yet, God, we also pray for the many across our, our land, our nation, our world who are far from you. Lord, some of them uh, are, are very near and dear to us. God, you know the heaviness of our heart to see uh, brothers and sisters, uh, sons, daughters, aunts, uncles, friends, neighbors, coworkers, walk in a way that is, is really in a Babylon of their own making. And God, we trust them to you. God, help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the most godly way. Help us to, to, to act rightly before them. Help us to speak the word in and out of season. Help us, God, to proclaim the truth that you have come and you have died for us so that we might be reconciled to you. And God, help us to live out of the joy of knowing that our lives and our walks with you matter today. It's not just looking forward to the world to come, but it actually matters because as we walk with you today, God, we are in relationship with the one who has made us. Thank you, God, for the gift of being your sons and your daughters today. We bless you in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and Redeemer. And together we say, amen.